0: Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for more than 25 years. Now, let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. So, welcome to episode one of Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial. I'm Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage, and your host. I'm excited to do our very first episode of Wealthy Behavior on cryptocurrencies, what they are, how the technology behind them works, why all the buzz, the different coins, and importantly, how to think about them as an investor. With me today is David Leibowitz, Global Market Strategist on the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Global Market Insight Strategy Team. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, David.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about something that, depending on your perspective, is the greatest new investment opportunity of all time, a speculative trap waiting to happen, something investors love, something friends of mine in the industry can't wait to stop talking about. And that topic is digital assets and cryptocurrencies. So let me start quickly with your background in this topic. As a global market strategist with J.P. Morgan, how closely are you following the crypto market and are you invested yourself in it?
1: So um, we we are following it very closely, mostly because it continues to come up in, in pretty much every client conversation that we have. Uh, across both the retail and, and the institutional spectrum. Um, we actually wrote a, a dedicated paper on the topic as part of our uh, 2022 long-term capital market assumptions, which came out uh, at the very end of, of last year. And we've been giving presentations on the topic. We've been working with colleagues in the investment bank who actually focus on, on blockchain for the purposes of the uh, of the broader business itself, um, so it's definitely an area where we've been spending a lot of time here uh, over the uh, over the course of the past uh, past couple of, of months. Um, I, I will say though, you know, working for for a big bank, um, I, I am not personally in, invested. Um, <clears throat> compliance has, has put up a handful of hurdles, but um, that doesn't mean that that, that won't change here uh, at some point down the road.
0: Got it. Great, thank you. Uh, you know, my first question really on this is, I think when these First gain notice, people started talking about them. They went by the term cryptocurrencies, but now I'm hearing a lot more the term digital assets. What's the difference, and does that really
1: matter? So I, I think for you know the average individual, and then I'll kind of share our our take on this. Um, the biggest difference between a, a cryptocurrency and a digital asset is that most people believe that a cryptocurrency is a, a digital token um, that is tied to some unique blockchain and so you know very similar to the way that before the euro uh every country in europe had a different currency um every different blockchain has a unique token associated with it and that's really where the idea of of cryptocurrencies um has has come out of digital assets you know people tend to use that term to refer to things like non-fungible tokens or nfts uh, which i would say are are more of a traditional asset and and less of a, a a currency. But you know in general, we're we're not fully sold that cryptocurrencies are actually currencies. Um, My background is in economics. When I think about a currency, I think about it as a a store of value, a medium of exchange. And, you know, the reality is I can't go downtown where I live in Connecticut and buy my morning cup of coffee and pay for it using, say, Bitcoin, at least not yet. And so, you know, there are a number of other differences as well in terms of, you know, who secures the the network, um, how does it derive its value? I think we're going to get into a lot of that over the course of our conversation today. But, you know, to me, these these are really all digital assets. Um, the biggest difference between, say, again, an NFT and and a cryptocurrency or a crypto asset is really you know whether or not it is the unique um, token of, of a given of a given blockchain.
0: Got it. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. And the one that people talk about the most uh, is probably Bitcoin um, that has kind of come to be interchangeable with cryptocurrency. Let's talk a little bit, if we could, about how many coins there are, how many of them really matter, how similar or different are they? Uh, for example, I know that Bitcoin has a finite supply, but that's not maybe the case for all the other coins, right?
1: That's, that's exactly the case. So, um, you know, there are a plethora of, of cryptocurrencies out there in the current environment, um, you know, arguably too many for, for any individual to, to keep track of. Uh, on on a daily basis. Um, The way that we think about it is, you know, there's obviously a very broad universe. We tend to focus on the more liquid uh, tokens, the ones that are more heavily traded, um, and really just thinking about it as a share of the overall market capitalization. You know, you have about 50% of of crypto market cap split between Bitcoin and and Ether, with Ether being the token tied to the Ethereum blockchain. Um, you You then have about another quarter um, which is comprised of, of different tokens like Cardano, Solana, Tether, Polkadot, XRP. I'm sure that means very little to, to a lot of our listeners, but oh. it gives you a sense of how many different um, coins are are actually out there. And, and importantly, you know, when we think about the crypto universe, a lot of the names that I just mentioned are are very different from things like Dogecoin. I think the way we we split this up in our minds is. We say, okay, you know, what, if any, real economic value can we tie these tokens to? You know, so in the case of of something like Ether, um, the Ethereum blockchain has the ability to run smart contracts. Those are rules-based applications for processing information. To me, it seems like there is real value. Um, in that type of technology, you know, again, you, you think about something like Dogecoin, which is based on the meme of a dog, um, you know, debatable how much value that that token will will have over time. But, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different cryptos out there, and and they each have their own unique um, set of, of fundamental traits. You know, you mentioned Bitcoin and you mentioned the supply, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin in circulation once it all has been mined. Um, that's simply the way that, that the application, that the code uh, was originally written, and you juxtapose that with something like ether, where there's effectively an infinite supply. Right, the reward ebbs and flows depending on how much activity there is on the network. But you know, over time, there's just going to be more and more ether that that is created and, and becomes available um, for people to to use in order to to have these transactions processed or to invest in. Uh, which is what we see a lot of in the current environment, and so you know, to us, it's there. There are a couple of things that we always try to focus on. You know, what does the blockchain that this token is associated with really do? Does it create any real economic value? And, and then, obviously, we look at some of the more technical aspects of these of these digital assets uh, in terms of their their trading turnover. It gives us a sense of their liquidity. Uh, we're obviously always looking at the price, but again, you know, lots of moving parts here beneath the uh, beneath the surface.
0: Yeah, definitely. So let's maybe take a step back before jumping forward. Uh, we've chatted a little bit about this already, but you know, what is a cryptocurrency if you're explaining it to somebody for the first time and what's the blockchain technology, what do those things mean and how do they connect to each
1: other? Absolutely. So I'm actually gonna answer that that question in reverse because I think that, that that's a little bit easier way to, to wrap your head around the whole thing. So. Um, If we take a step back and think about what a blockchain is, um, a blockchain is is nothing more than a database. Um, And as we all know, a database is a collection of information that is stored electronically. Now, the biggest difference between a blockchain and a traditional database is is simply in the way that the data is structured. And you think about a traditional database, uh, say a workbook in Microsoft Excel, you're gonna have your data structured into into rows, into columns, Um, a blockchain on the other hand is going have its data structured in the blocks. And so, you know, in the simplest sense, all blockchains are databases, but not all databases are blockchains. And in the current environment, blockchains are used, they're primarily used um, to track cryptocurrency transactions. But there are a lot of real world applications here as well. And, you know, two come to mind. Um, The first is an example, um, actually uh, the example of Walmart. So Walmart uses a blockchain for quality control in its produce business. Um, effectively that allows it to track, say, a mango from the point at which it is received from a farmer to the point at which it is sold in one of their stores around the world. And if we, you know, think about the the various fiascos with contaminated food over time, these these issues often take months to resolve. If you were using a blockchain, it could be done over the course of an afternoon. Uh, Another example in New York state, there's something called the Excelsior app. This is where you upload your vaccination status and they scan it when you try to go into restaurants or bars, um, sporting events, so on or so forth. The Excelsior app uh, is actually based on a blockchain, and that's where they're aggregating all of the, the information uh, on who's been vaccinated, who's been boosted, so on and, and so forth. And so when you start to think about blockchains in, in that sense, you realize that they are a, a pretty tremendous way of not just storing information, but processing information and processing transactions as, as well. Now there are public blockchains and there are private blockchains uh, or, or permissioned blockchains is, is really the industry term. Um, you know, a private blockchain, the, the token that's associated with that it's debatable whether it's going to have any value, you know, private blockchains are things that corporations build for processing data internally. You think about a public blockchain, like the Bitcoin blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain. Well, you have all these miners out there who are processing these transactions, right. And trying to validate these transactions, they need to be compensated in order for doing so, or in in, uh, response for, for doing so. And so what happens here is the tokens that are associated with those public blockchains begin to have value. You know, again, I'd go back to the example I used earlier. To me, each blockchain is like its own country and it has a unique currency associated with it. So if you want to go and do something that that only a a specific blockchain can actually do right then there's value to that transaction being processed there's therefore value to the currency and that's how we really try to hone in on where the fundamental value uh, of these currencies you know may actually may actually lie which there's a ton of volatility and i know we're going to get to that but as we try to look through the noise um that's kind of how we think about think about doing so
0: how long have blockchains existed
1: So blockchain technology has been around since the early 2000s. Um, Bitcoin really hit the ground in, in I believe, 2009. And that's when people really began to hone in on this. But actually at at JPMorgan, you know, we've been been investing in and, and, you know, leveraging blockchains, again, since, since before the financial crisis. And it's something that has grown exponentially over time, but has actually been around for, you know, 15 or 20 years at this point.
0: So it's just getting more attention now with its connection to crypto Um, and, you know, is there a difference in the technology and the power of one blockchain over the other that would cause you to think that the currency or the coin connected with it is more attractive or less attractive or are they all fairly comparable to each other from a technology standpoint?
1: So from a from a basic technology standpoint, they're all pretty much similar, right? You basically have these, these miners who are trying to validate the transactions by solving a very complicated equation or puzzle, right? Crypto and cryptography and in cryptocurrency, that's kind of the link there. Um, so from a purely technological standpoint, they're all pretty similar. I think where the differences begin to arise is in what the blockchains almost specialize in. So coming back to some of the names that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, Solana is, is a blockchain that primarily operates in the decentralized finance space, right? So the way that that, that blockchain is built really caters to, to DeFi specifically. You think about something like Cardano uh, on the other hand, and, and that really is aiming to provide a more secure scalable and efficient experience relative to other blockchains. Um, You think about something like uh, Polkadot, which is really meant to allow for the cross blockchain transfer of different digital assets. And so you begin to think about these individual use cases, that's where we start trying to derive what the underlying value may be. Uh, but from a purely technological standpoint, you know all of these things effectively operate in the same way. The biggest difference is that you have some blockchains and historically blockchains have relied on proof of work where 51% of the users on the network need to verify that the the answer to this equation is the right answer in order for the transactions to be processed, you're seeing a movement away of that towards something called proof of stake, where transactions are allocated based on a user's stake in the network, which is oftentimes uh, dependent on the amount of coin that they they hold. Um, That's a much more efficient, environmentally friendly way of processing transactions, but that's really the biggest difference that we see in the current environment.
0: And I know we, we're going to start with the, what blockchain is and then jump to, you know, what is what is crypto, but we've mentioned or you've mentioned a few times so far now kind of mining and validating and that's probably a complicated concept. Well, this all sounds complicated, but that's probably a complicated concept for the individual investor. What is Bitcoin or, or crypto mining?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, let's say that you have tickets to a football game um, and I want to buy those those tickets from you and I want to pay you for those tickets using Bitcoin just to keep it simple. So the way that this all works is we start by, by broadcasting the transaction to the network of computers that are running the Bitcoin code. So David wants to buy Patriots tickets from Sammy uh, for you know X number of, of Bitcoin. Um, What then happens is our transaction gets bundled up with other transactions, and these miners then work to solve very complicated equations that effectively produce a unique string of digits and and letters that is um, unique to that collection of transactions. Once they think they have the answer, again, this is where proof of work comes in, they need the rest of the network to agree. Right? So it's very democratic um, and you need, you need consensus in order for those transactions to be validated. And then once the transactions are validated, once everybody's in agreement that the answer is the answer, that block gets chained onto the existing blockchain. The miner is rewarded with, um, in the case of Bitcoin, six and a quarter Bitcoin for every block that they mine. And then the whole process starts itself over again. And so uh, you know, back to what I said earlier, Part of the reason why there's value in these cryptocurrencies, or the market has decided that there's value in these cryptocurrencies, is because effectively the blockchain is providing a service, and these people that are providing that service need to be compensated uh, for what they're for what they're doing.
0: And how long does that validation process take? And I've forgotten your example if I was buying tickets or selling them, but how long does the seller wait until they've received their you know validation and their currency?
1: So, the answer is that it depends. Um, and it depends on how much activity there is on the network at any given point in time. Not only is there the reward of you know the miner receiving crypto for for validating the transaction, but there are also a number of other fees that oftentimes get layered in there um, to the overall to the overall process. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, the transaction time does vary when the network is busy. Um, it tends to take longer. And this is actually a perfect kind of way to circle back to my point earlier. Of these are very much assets and not necessarily currencies. You know, these numbers are going to be precisely wrong. But Visa process is something like 4000 transactions per second and Bitcoin processes four right? So the scale here is completely different. Um, that said, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the more people you get, you know, mining and, and verifying and participating, you know, arguably the more transactions that are able to, to be processed. Um, but this is one of the things that that has caught the attention of the regulators, because the system can get kind of clogged up, if you will, um, when there is a lot of activity on the, uh, on the network.
0: Understood. And so is your sense, and, and maybe this is still too opaque or, or vague th- is that people are using it as an investment or are they using it as a currency?
1: So I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I do think that you have a, a group of individuals who like the idea of a decentralized network, um, you know, an anonymous network. They, they like kind of all of the th- a very secure network. They like all of the things. There are a lot of the things I should say Uh, That crypto brings to the table. That said, you do have people that are purely viewing these as investments. and, And that's particularly true in the institutional investor community, you know, hedge funds will will trade anything with volatility. And over the past 10 years, Bitcoin has had an average annualized volatility of more than 250%. And so you just really have to take a directional view on these assets if if you're a speculator or an investor. And that has led an increasing number of players to come in, particularly from the hedge fund community um, and not only trade the, the underlying Digital tokens, but but now we're seeing more and more activity actually in the private equity and the venture capital world um, in terms of funding a lot of these companies that are building the underlying blockchains, uh, which, as we discussed earlier, have have you know very different uh, use cases depending on the way that they are uh, depending on the way that they're constructed.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to touch on the the value and the volatility obviously as you pointed out and I think we're defaulting a little bit to Bitcoin as a just an easier uh, example but this I think applies across the board I did see something saying that you know it was five times as volatile as gold four times as volatile as the & p 500 what gives any given coin its its value and and why has it been so volatile
1: so I think that this is where you know the the thinking cap really needs to, to, to get put on because in the most fundamental sense, I mean, these are their commodities, right? Their prices are based on supply and demand. A Bitcoin is worth what somebody will give you for it at, at a given point in time. And the way that we've started to think about this, as we've seen more and more growth in, in blockchain and you know as a result of that growth in the number of digital tokens that are available, for investment is, you know, can we tie what this blockchain is doing to some sort of income stream in the real economy? Because if you can tie these things to cash flow, now you can begin to value them very similar to the way that you would, you know, run a DCF analysis to value value equities. And so um, there are more and more ways of coming up with, you know, an intrinsic value for these these assets, particularly the ones that operate on blockchains, which are able to be tied to the real economy, I've seen some speculation as to what the long term value of Bitcoin should be. Kind of comparing it to gold, looking at the stock of Bitcoin versus the stock of gold, making a whole bunch of assumptions. Um, to me, that's the ultimate hand waving exercise. Um, I like it much more if I can tie it to a cash flow and then figure out what those cash flows are going to be worth in the future.
0: Understood, and and it's that is. Kind of getting into the investment case or um, the difficulty of an investment case. That's been the challenge so far. Uh, you know, I, I think we've we've chatted about this briefly. You can really invest, unless you're speculating, you can really invest in a couple of main ways. And one is just do individual price discovery, figure out what a security should be worth and decide whether you have an attractive entry point or not. The other way to do it is if you're gonna take more of an asset allocation approach, and you know try to forecast the long-term return of something how correlated it will be to other investments that will be in your portfolio and what return expectation you could uh, attach to it going forward both of those are still extremely difficult to do with crypto and digital assets uh it, yes or, or no i guess your thoughts on that and is it still kind of in that speculative realm because of that
1: so the, the answer to your, your question is yes. Um, sizing the position is, is next to impossible because, you know, as you noted, if you think about portfolio construction and, and you know, an, uh, mean variance optimization framework, um, basically what you need as inputs are an expected return, an expected correlation, and an expected volatility. Um, very difficult to forecast things where the volatility is is wildly unstable and as you said multiple times that of the S&P uh, very difficult to forecast the correlation when the correlations are equally unstable uh, over time and again you know from a return perspective I could come up with an expected return but if the market decides that they don't like Bitcoin um, supply and demand are going to win out versus you know my, my theoretical view and so we actually um, as just kind of a thought exercise said well, instead of trying to predict the future, let's just use the past. And so we ran uh, kind of an optimization analysis using lookback windows and, and historical data. And what we found is that if you use the three-year lookback window versus a five-year look back window versus a 10-year lookback window, you ended up with wildly different uh, recommended allocations because the numbers have changed so drastically over all those periods of time. And so for that reason, I, I do think that it's still somewhat speculative. We see people using it in portfolios. And again, we're we're not saying that this is a bad thing, but to me, the kind of overarching uh, principle, if you will, is that if you're going to invest in these assets, you need to be okay with the value going to zero, because there is a chance that someday everyone wakes up and they say, you know what, like, This just isn't worth anything. It's you know I'm I'm walking away, and if everybody walks away, well you know then then the value again could theoretically fall to zero. Not our base case scenario, but if you can't stomach the loss, the bottom line is that this is not the right asset class for you.
0: No, and I I think that makes a ton of sense, and that's why I'm I feel really fortunate that you're joining us today for this podcast because you're taking a very thoughtful approach. There are crypto evangelists who, no matter what they think, you know got to be there. Then there's people brilliant people who are dead set against it, will never touch it. And then there's people in the middle who are trying to learn and, and keep an open mind, but you know, not take on too much risk while they're doing so. Uh, so that's a, you know, a very beneficial uh, approach for, for our listeners. You talked a little bit about going to zero and you mentioned one reason. What are some of the other reasons that could hurt a specific cryptocurrency or digital asset or that you know, category in general?
1: so um you know a, a couple of thoughts there one and and we touched on it if everybody walks away then then the price um you know goes goes all the way down to zero the the other thing that that you could potentially see are coins just become somewhat obsolete so you think about the continuous development of blockchains you know it's it's like version one versus version two if you get the new shiny. Um, you know, object and and it's better than the one you used to have. Well, maybe you walk away from that. And again, if everybody walks away, then the value declines to to zero. Um, You know, I do think it's important to recognize that liquidity has played a role um, in the price action we've seen, particularly over the past couple of years. And, you know, I'm not saying that, that quantitative tightening is coming. I'm not saying that the Fed is going to move as aggressively as what the market is pricing. Um, but what I will say is that I think policy is going to get less easy going forward. And you could very well see some of these more speculative um, digital assets come under pressure as, as monetary policy. Uh, gradually begins to tighten here. And so, you know, we, we'd really be looking at kind of a confluence of factors um, when it comes to, to what could push the value of these various assets down, down to zero. Um, and, and it feels like it would be more idiosyncratic as opposed to macro in the sense of, you know, individual coins kind of falling by the wayside rather than the entire asset class imploding uh, at a given point in time.
0: Got it. Understood. And that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've, I've heard, uh, or Ray Dalio say that this is the modern day gold. Do you buy into that? Do you see the analogy or do you think it's too simplistic?
1: I, I think it's a little bit too simplistic. You know, the first point I would make is that it's not really correlated to gold. So tough to, tough to see how it can be the new gold, but I, I understand why people draw this comparison, you know, limited supply, Um, You know, kind of a a currency type instrument. Um, I think that there are a lot of nuances. And again, you know, we believe that the real value is in the blockchain. And so, you know, you begin to look at some of these other tokens and something like Ether where the supply isn't capped. Well, now I'm struggling more with why that would be um, like digital gold, I, I sort of understand again the Bitcoin comparison, but I, I think it's much more than that. You know, to me, this is another sleeve that has been created within the commodity complex more broadly, and I do believe, um, you know, pretty pretty adamantly that over the course of the coming years, people are going to be talking about investing in crypto right alongside their conversations about investing in things like copper uh, and other traditional um, traditional commodities.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. In a recent blog post up on heritagefinancial.net, we noted that some money managers are tracking the price of Bitcoin as a way to gauge how speculative the market is, one of those kind of speculation indicators. Are you seeing that? And does that tell investors something in general about Bitcoin and crypto?
1: So I think, you know, I I do think I, I would replace speculation with sentiment, um, I think it tells you a lot about the, the tone of the market, and you know you look at what's gone on here over the course of the past couple of weeks. You know, stocks and bonds both down to start the year. Um, speculative growth names down more than their value counterparts. Uh, Bitcoin finding its footing, but still down significantly relative to where it stood. You know closer to the uh to the end of last year and so you know to me it, it kind of tells me about the tone of the market and the sentiment in the market um rather than being a direct indicator of of speculation i think there are certain parts of the crypto complex you know the ones the 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 tokens that don't really seem tied to, to blockchains that could create any real economic value the more speculative parts of the crypto universe may give a sense of speculation Overall, but I think if you're looking at at the price of of Bitcoin or Ether or some of the other ones that we've mentioned today, it's going to tell you more about the way people are feeling when it comes to taking on risk in general um, than it is, you know, an indicator that that you know the pot is boiling over and and things are about to get really nasty.
0: Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else? Because I know I probably jumped around a little bit on you. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about crypto? Or the blockchain that we haven't gotten to
1: yet? Um, I, I would just kind of encourage everybody, you know, go out and, and do your own research. Um, you know, Sammy, you, you made the point that, you know, everybody's got their own view and, and some people are diehard believers, and you know, some people are like, no way, this is this is the complete, this is complete nonsense. Um, there's a lot of really good information out there. And I think what we all need to do is just improve our understanding of of what's actually Going on, because I can tell you that when I started my foray into the crypto world, um, I was much more skeptical uh, than I am today and in the process of talking to people who work in the industry, reading, you know, academic research on it, reading investment research on it. I I feel like I've begun to build an understanding of how this piece fits into the broader pie. And so my, my only ask of all of our listeners, all of your listeners, I should say, is that don't dismiss it without doing your homework. Um, if you go and you learn about it, and you say, you know what, this is still kind of crazy. It's not for me. That's fine. You have an informed opinion. Uh, what drives me nuts are people that that are very adamant in their view. And there there isn't a whole lot of substance standing behind it.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I love the, the way that you uh, uh, present that in terms of in terms of making an informed decision. And I think that that's key. You shouldn't invest in it because you're experiencing FOMO or you know you're hearing about it Thanksgiving or you know who's making a killing on it that to me is is one of the worst reasons and, and probably if you start a position for those reasons it's likely not going to work out because you'll be rattled out of it with some volatility uh, which as we've talked about is, is definitely present in this uh, investment type so uh, I think People uh, should do their research, and I think this podcast and the information that you shared, David, gets them started on that. Um, And so, you know, I thank you uh, for sharing your insight. I know we can go on for a lot longer on this topic, but it's been a great dialogue thus far, and I definitely appreciate you sharing your insight with our audience. What's one thing you want people to take away about crypto as it relates to their personal wealth?
1: So, you know, the one thing I would want people to take away about crypto is that there is no way to get rich quick, regardless <laughs> of the asset class that we're talking about. You know, as you were just talking now, Sammy, something jumped into my mind, something that was said to me uh, very early on in, in my career, which is the bulls get rich, the bears get rich, but the pigs get slaughtered. And sure. I think that that should really be the guiding light when it comes to investing in, in these crypto assets. You know, you like them, express your view. don't like them express your view but if you start to get greedy that's probably going to going to be when you meet your downfall and so again you know basing any investment decision on fundamentals rather than on opinions i think is the key to success not just with respect to crypto uh, but with respect to investing particularly over the course of the longer term
0: great advice and along those lines david what's the best piece of money advice you ever received
1: so the best piece of advice i've ever received was start early Um, The most powerful force in the universe is compounding. And if you can put your money to work sooner rather than later, you can get that money working for you. Um, And that's why I opened my daughter's 529 account before she was even born. You know, now she's three. We've got a couple of years ahead. But, you know, let time be on your side when it comes to investing, because if you can be patient, you will enjoy more success, uh, particularly in the long run.
0: That's great stuff. Awesome. Thank you very much, David, for joining me today and thank you uh, for sharing your insight.
1: My pleasure, thanks again for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow Heritage Financial on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com and follow me on Twitter at Sam S-A-M-A-Z-Z-O-U-Z.
1: This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment
0: or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.